Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. First lesson this morning comes from the book of Psalms, the 113th Psalm. Let us listen that we may hear what God will share with us. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above the nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes from Luke's Gospel in the 16th chapter, beginning with verse 1. Listen now to the Word of God. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. And so he summoned him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And then the manager said to himself, What will I do now, now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes." So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. And then he asked another, And how much do you owe? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly for the children of this age, are far more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends of yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with a dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, 
or be devoted to the one and despise the other, and you cannot serve God and wealth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At times, we see Jesus really in the stained glass version, variety, idealized and maybe even like, and I love those pictures of, in childhood of Jesus in the, in the classroom it has with all the little children, and I'm sure He was lovely with little children, don't get me wrong about that either, but we sometimes get this very idealized, sanitized view of His world. And hard to get heads around the idea that Jesus very much lived in the everyday world in which we live. And sometimes it takes a very earthy, everyday parable like this to remind us that Jesus lived a very everyday kind of life in an extraordinary way. This is a parable of Jesus. This is a story that He told And Jesus took stories from everyday life. His parables came from the stuff that people lived. They always got it in terms of the everyday details that He presented. In the New Revised Standard, the gentleman is called a manager. Other versions refer to him as a steward who has responsibility for an estate. Now again, the people who first heard this story would understand. They are landlords. They have an estate, sometimes more than one estate, and they employ a manager, a steward, uh, to watch over it and to keep the accounts. Uh, They delegate that responsibility. And this fellow is not trustworthy. He is, uh, again, he's worked with the figures. Again, the people would have said, yep, I know of people like that. Even as the story was told, some of them might said, I know the guy down the street, he's just like that, just like this fellow. The steward has been responsible, given responsibility, but he is not trustworthy. And before this moment, the steward has had a moment of truth. He has discovered he must give an accounting, show all the assets, and show all the liabilities. I want to see the figures. And he knows that he's going to be sacked very soon. And then he has this interesting technique for working with the people. He marks down what is owed. Now, again, this is a story, so we stay within the story. But I'm sure people would have gotten what Jesus was talking about, these scenarios. Commentators have wondered, did it mean that the people were being charged an unfair Uh, rate of interest and what was owed, and he marked it down. The modern-day example would be a title pawn, where a title pawn manager brings in the people because he or she realizes that um, about to be sacked and said, okay, I'm going to make your interest rate just 2%. Mark it up real quick. That's what you're going to owe on your title pawn. That that would be a modern-day example. Maybe the steward, remember, he's a shady character. There's what you owed the master, but he also had his cut, his piece on top of it, and he is simply marking off his share of the deal. Now, the example I'm about to give is an honest example, 
But uh, years ago, trying to sell my house in Virginia, it took a while, and it was like four negotiations and three contracts before it was sold. But anyway, in one of those deals, I was being offered a price, and I really didn't like it. But a uh, real estate agent said, look, I, I'll cut back my commission if you'll go with it. And we went with it. it. That one fell through too. But anyway, the point was, you know, to sweeten the deal, you know, he's going to give up part of his commission. Maybe this is double insurance. All right. I've given you a deal. So when it's just so, we don't want this discovered by the master what you really owe now, do we? So, in turn, a bit of blackmail, you know, in turn, you'll give me back some of what I gave you. Maybe that was the strategy. These would have made sense to the people what the person is doing. Now, this story is more prescriptive, I'm sorry, descriptive, excuse me, descriptive, simply describing the situation. It's more descriptive than prescriptive. Jesus did not say, go and do likewise to the ones who heard it. He is simply uh, describing what has happened. But the steward, the manager, does get a good word. And why is that? How can this be possible? Jesus describes this fellow as shrewd. I was so intrigued by that, I did a good old-fashioned Bible research on the Word. As I was saying earlier, I pulled out the interlinear. I pulled out my Nestle Island. I pulled out every book and analyzed the words. I did everything but the concordance. Maybe I should have done that too. What does this Word mean? This book's piled this high to find out about this Word. And synonyms for it include, uh, besides being shrewd, clever, prudent, wise, sensible. Jesus commends this fellow for sharp thinking and strategic action. That may give this story clarity if you read the parable that follows a few verses later. I'll summarize it. It's a story that we have heard, some of us grew up in church have heard before, but it's about this very rich man. He dressed in purple every day, and that's the ultimate power color. And he wore fine lemon, fine lemon, fine linen, Armani suits. So every day he's wearing an Armani suit, even if it's to go down the street and pick up something from the local market. And he would pass this poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus, he was pitiful. He had sores and the dogs would lick the sores. I know it's a gross analogy, but I mean, that's, that's what says in the Scripture. It was that poor. He would have been happy for the scraps from the table from this rich fellow who just walked past him every day. Well, Lazarus dies and goes to the bosom of Abraham, and all is well for him. And the rich man goes to Hades. And it's hotter than Columbus in August, Okay. And at one point he says, if you could, oh, you know, Lord, just let Lazarus dip his finger into a pool of water. Now, put it on my tongue. I'm so hot down here. He said, nope, you got your good stuff on the front end. Well, then warn my brothers that they do not end up with this fate that I have. And the Lord says, they have Moses and the prophets just like you. You didn't listen they won't listen, even if a dead man came back. 
The second fellow, the guy with the great riches, the guy who had, for the most part, I mean, had far more resources than our steward, makes a poor choice. And when the time came, he is not ready. He had not used his resources well. This past Sunday, we marked 9-11. And once again, I reflected on stories of people from that day, um, those who survived and those who perished. And I remember a conversation a gentleman sharing with a group of us some years ago about Todd Beamer. He was one of the fellows on United Airlines Flight 93. And the fellow had read the biography, well, yes, that his wife had written. And he said, you know, Todd was a good guy. He was a committed Christian. He invested in his family and his friends. He was a good worker and uh, had a good reputation in the workplace. And wasn't perfect and was struggling to keep his priorities in order, keeping the family first. Uh, but he basically had his life in order so that it was his time or he, when he, and he died on that day, he was in a sense ready. Now, again, mid-30s, happily married, two preschool children and one on the way. No, in that sense, no. He would wanted to have stayed. Anybody in that situation would. But his life was in order. The man sharing about the story talked with us. He said, it made me look at my life. And I said, if I, you know, for whatever reason, something happened and I was away, called away, would everything in my life been in, be in order? And he said, there was an item over here. Uh, and it actually was a financial piece, uh, just making sure money went to an appropriate place. I mean, he wasn't dishonest. Don't get me wrong on that one. But just where are my priorities here? He said, I want to be ready to know my things are in order. The fellow had his, he, he had his things in order, our steward. He is commended for using his mind well, using it in this critical time, using his brains well. And in a conversation with a pastor this past week, he said, in effect, that Jesus is saying, look, folks, when it comes to saving your own skin, you're clever. You are resourceful. You are creative. So when it comes then to kingdom goals and gospel business, use your intelligence, use your energy, use your imagination with the same cleverness that this person did in this situation. From this very earthy, everyday, real-world story of Jesus, we have this major, major lesson. We need that grace to use our minds well and strategically. It requires gracious wisdom and the grace of courage and bravery to follow through with this. It takes wisdom, even courage, to use well what we have. It also takes grace and to be true and act faithfully with those things entrusted to us, no matter how small. That's the next part that follows. The one who is faithful over little things will be faithful over much. You may have heard this saying as a child, 
If you take care of your pennies, the dollars will take care of themselves. Watching the small things to see that a bigger piece is handled. Football season is upon us, and I could not help but think the classic story of Vince Lombardi, who was a stickler for the details and doing those small actions to leading to the big success, and how he supposedly began every training season by saying, this is a football. John Wooden of uh, UCLA basketball was famous for beginning his first practice by telling the players how to wear their socks in just a certain way and how to tie their sneakers in just a certain way to avoid blisters. Basketball players with blisters will not play well. Take care of these basic pieces. I think of the teachers who are careful with their lesson plans, each little piece to make the larger lesson work. Teachers that have the practice to greet each student by name to make them know they matter. Who work hard to set the tone each day for the class. My mother shared a story about one of the elementary school teachers, and she was younger, could hear the class, she was down the hall. She made a point of beginning the day, each day, by singing, having the class sing a song. Now, my mother loves to sing. I'm sure that was part of the reason that she wanted to be in that class. And when it came time for that grade, she was in that class. They could begin the day by singing, and I'll simply say it, Uh, Good morning to you, good morning to you. We're all in our places with sunshiny faces. Good morning to you. A little thing to set the tone right for the day. Faithful over small details leading to success with things that are bigger. Think of the story of two women, Violet and Maud. Violet is a supervisor. Maud is one of her people for whom she's responsible And they've got a good working relationship and a personal relationship has also developed over the years. And Maud's got a good work reputation, but lately, Maud's personal life has been a mess through no fault of her own. Her husband is giving her a particular set of challenges, and each child, one by one, has decided to present his and her own set of challenges. And it's beginning to affect Maud's work. And so Maud is brought into the office, a special conference room with Violet, her supervisor. And Maud is seated in a chair, and on either side are placed as, as a chair. And Violet goes to this chair and says, now look, as your friend, I know what's going on, the challenges you've had at home. I know this is the situation with your husband, and I know what each child has been doing in your life. And I know you are carrying a burden. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I feel for you and what you're doing and what you're having to go through there. Over to the next chair. But I'm also your supervisor. And these are things I've been seeing at work. Uh, Projects not done to the way that you've done them before. Not to the standard that I'm used to seeing from you. And it's impacting others. Now, as your friend, I know you leave home carrying a weight and you go home knowing there is a weight there for you. And I know you're doing your best. 
And I know this is draining your energy. But as your supervisor, there's a standard here we have to have at the company. And there are other people that count on the work that you do here as well as the customers. So how can we go forward? How can we work on your performance, fully aware of what's going on at home, but how can we make it work here? A small detail to let her know, I'm aware of your heart, but let's work on what's going on here. Maybe that was why Violet was such a successful supervisor. Grace to use our minds well in life decisions, that call to bravery, and grace to see the small things and do them with faithfulness, be true to what's our responsibility. This is a third thing to which Jesus speaks in this story. It's a call to loyalty, saying no one can serve two, two masters, two bosses. Thinking one way we might say it today, on whose team are you playing? Who is your team? This would have made sense to the people then about having two, you can't have two masters. People worked. Everybody worked for somebody else on up the pecking, pecking order all the way up the scale. And they understood that ultimately you've got one boss. There may be several people with whom you're working and you've got those relationships. But in the end, there is one boss, one person for whom you're working. Working in a household, it may be the lady of the house is the power behind the throne. And so you're saying, yes, sir, to the boss, and then going over and checking with the lady of the house and saying, that is what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? Yes, no, okay. Someone is going to be the boss. There are not two bosses. On whose team are you playing? Where is your first loyalty? Again, we're in the midst of football season, and one of the things I love to see driving around town are those tags on the fronts of cars that says either family feud or house divided. It'll have the two schools. Uh, typically, I see Alabama-Auburn or Auburn-Georgia or Alabama-Georgia or Alabama-Georgia. Once I was in North Carolina and I saw UNC and Duke. Like, you don't see that too often really because I'm down here, but like, and it would be very interesting in that household, I can assure you. And usually I think in these family situations, the philosophy is, all right, honey, when Alabama's playing any other team, I'll pull for Alabama. But when they pull for Auburn, it's War Eagle. Or I'll pull, you know, you know me, I'm going to pull for Georgia. I'll pull for Georgia against anybody out there except when they play the University of South Carolina. Even then, one can have a little bit of two loyalties, but when it comes to that final game day, whose team are you, for whose team are you pulling? For whose team are you supporting? For whose team are you playing? Once in a conversation with a young woman, she said, oh, I need to talk to somebody. I'll see her at soccer. Now we're playing at opposite teams. But, you know, between the, ga between the games, I'll talk with her. Because when we're playing, I'm on my team. She's on hers. We're going to win. 
But afterwards, yeah, I could talk to her and get this matter squared away. You knew, they knew on whose team they were playing. Question for us is how do we use the focus that God has given us? Ultimately, on whose team are we playing? And once you know on whose team you're playing, and then your other decisions come as a result of that. God calls us to use our intelligence, our energy, our imagination for kingdom purposes wherever we are placed. And it takes bravery and courage to ask, what do I need to do? And God calls us to pay attention to the small things that matter in God's realm, to be true and faithful to those commitments. And the question to ask is, what small thing do I need to watch? And God calls us in terms of loyalty, for which team in the end do you play? A call to be loyal and steadfast, and a question to ask myself, how am I serving my team? How am I playing well for my team? Now, this can be overwhelming. And as I was writing and preparing this, I must admit I felt a bit of a weight, the expectations. But then I remembered another word of Scripture where Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. On our own, this is a burden, a heavy load. We're set up to fail. But God in Jesus Christ, working through the Holy Spirit in us, gives us the grace to fulfill and to act as we are called. It's God's grace that will give us the eyes to see where we need, what we need to do and how to use our minds to see the small things in which we are called to be faithful. And it's God's grace which makes us or gives us the strength to be loyal and to be steadfast. It's His grace which nudges us and reminds us for which team we are playing. With ears to hear and eyes to see, in the end it's God's grace that will make it possible that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.